This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Westminster's Confession, The Abandonment of Van Til's Legacy by Gary North, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright Gary North, 1991. Chapter 1. The Question of Inheritance. Quote, If you dip into any college or school or parish or family, anything you like, at a given point in its history, you always find that there was a time before that point when there was more elbow room and contrasts weren't quite so sharp, and that there's going to be a time after that point when there is even less room for indecision and choices are even more momentous. Good is always getting better, and bad is always getting worse. The possibilities of even apparent neutrality are always diminishing. The whole thing is sorting itself out all the time, coming to a point, getting sharper and harder." End quote. C.S. Lewis, 1946 Revolutions do not just happen. They are not the products of impersonal social forces. They are planned and executed by individuals. They are led. This book is a story of a revolution. Actually, it is the story of a revolution and a counter-revolution. The revolution was launched philosophically by Cornelius Van Til. He did not carry it to its conclusion, but others have extended it in his name. The counter-revolution was launched by Edmund P. Clowney. It was successful institutionally. We have the proof of his initial success in Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. The question that my book attempts to answer is this. Was this also a successful counter-revolution intellectually and theologically? You know my answer already. No. Now I must prove my case. In 1964, Robert D. Knudsen assigned that hideous strength to his entire class, for example, me. Unquote. The fate of freedom in Western philosophy, end quote. Lewis's book was a revelation to me. In this 1946 novel, some of the major issues of the next half-century were spelled out. It covered the revival of occultism, the growth of state-funded humanist science, the control of the press by narrow elites, the bureaucratic war against Christianity, and much more. But it was the above-quoted statement made by the character in the novel who was most like Lewis that grabbed me. Here in one brilliant paragraph was Van Til's view of history the ever-increasing self-consciousness of both covenant-keepers and covenant-breakers. History does not move backward. It cannot remain ethically neutral. It moves forward in a series of conflicts, not class conflicts, but covenantal conflicts. There is no escape from choosing. The lines are drawn ever more sharply and tightly over time. Little did I know as I sat in my basement room in Machen Hall, reading Lewis's novel, that upstairs in the Westminster Seminary Administration offices, the reality of Lewis's vision was being played out. Fundamental choices were being made, day by day. These choices were being forced upon the seminary because of three institutionally inescapable events. These decisions were to determine the direction the seminary was to take over the next quarter century. Institutional Turning Points the two crucial events in the life of any organization are its founding 
in his first transition at the death or retirement of the founder. Westminster Seminary, however, had three crises. The third came when the seminary's constitution was restructured in 1965 in order to lodge greater power in one office, the newly created presidency. The issue raised at Westminster's second and third crisis relates to point five of the biblical covenantal model, succession. The institutional question is simple, who will inherit? The answer, however, is rarely simple. In the case of Westminster Seminary, the first major event had taken place 35 years before the third event. J. Gresham Machen's hiring of Cornelius Van Til. With that decision, Machen made a break, a fundamental break, with the entire history of Christian apologetics. This break was nothing short of revolutionary. I doubt that Machen fully understood the magnitude of Van Til's radical discontinuity with all previous apologetic approaches. Whether he did or didn't, he made the decision to hire Van Til. The second event was Machen's death on January 1, 1937. He was the acknowledged spokesman of conservative American Orthodox Protestantism. He was the founder of the seminary. He was the founder of what soon became known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He was the visionary, the backbone, the Moses and Joshua of conservative Northern Presbyterianism, and he did not cross over into the Promised Land. Worse, he had only recently led them out of Egypt. His followers began their wandering in the wilderness, where they still find themselves. They had begun to think of their mission as a wilderness experience. He was the last of the post-millennialists at Westminster for the next quarter of a century. All millennialism, the eschatology of wilderness living, became the dominant force at Westminster Seminary, which it still is. The first stage of the inheritance was completed during stage two. From the old Princeton's post-millennial optimism, to the new Amsterdam's amillennial pessimism. This vision of historical despair was best articulated by Van Til. Instead of adopting the view of God's sanctions in history that is presented in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, where covenant breakers get weaker over time and covenant keepers get stronger, he reversed the roles played by each group. He asserted that as each side becomes more self-conscious and more consistent, Lewis's very vision Covenant breakers will become culturally dominant, while covenant keepers will lose influence and become increasingly tyrannized by their enemies. Van Til wrote, quote, But when all the reprobate are epistemologically self-conscious, the crack of doom has come. The fully self-conscious reprobate will do all he can in every dimension to destroy the people of God. So while we seek with all our power to hasten the process of differentiation in every dimension, we are yet thankful. On the other hand, for the day of grace, the day of undeveloped differentiation. Such tolerance as we receive on the part of the world is due to this fact that we live in the earlier rather than in the late stage of history. And such influence on the public situation as we can effect, whether in society or in state, presupposes this undifferentiated stage of development. End quote. The third event was institutional. The ascension of Edmund Prosper Clowney STM, to the Office of Dean of Academic Affairs in 1963, a position that he held for almost 20 years. In the 1965 academic year, he became the acting president of the seminary, a newly created office, and then in 1966, 
the year he was awarded his honorary doctorate from Wheaton College, he became president. The seminary's constitution had to be revised in order to create this office, a position he also held until he retired in 1982. An opportunity to reshape the seminary for the second time was now appeared. Once again, the question was, who would inherit? As things turned out, it would not be the new Amsterdam. The Inheritance The seminary's donors in 1965 were mostly Christian Reformed Church members and Orthodox Presbyterian Church members. This makeup of the donors reflected the makeup of the seminary's faculty. Whatever changes were to be made could not threaten this donor base until a new base had been built up. From what took place over the next two decades, I believe that Clowney fully understood this limitation. But what he could not have foreseen in 1963 soon became apparent. The second half of the 1960s offered a tremendous opportunity to change the seminary's student base. American society was shaken by the arrival of the anti-war movement and unprecedented social ferment for which traditional theologies and traditional churches had no answers. The West blew up culturally in 1965, and academic institutions were given an opportunity to respond. Few did. Concomitant with the Vietnam War were draft deferrals for students, especially seminary students. This allowed seminaries to grow rapidly, and Westminster did exactly that. The question facing Clowney was this. Could he shift the seminary student base without endangering its donor base? The second question was this. How could he do this without also shifting the seminary's theology? He couldn't. This led to the third question. How could the seminary's theology be shifted without damaging the reputation of the school and its income, without blowing up the faculty, and without seeming to have shifted? It would take a very skilled manager to engineer this. Edmund Clowney was very skilled. Westminster Seminary could no longer escape this choice. 1. Side with Van Til by rejecting totally the underlying ethical and judicial foundations of humanist thought and culture, but without abandoning the Bible, or else. 2. Break with Van Til and adopt a more ecumenical apologetic method. To have stayed with Van Til's apologetic would have meant launching a frontal assault on the so-called counterculture. But this counterculture was increasingly popular with seminary students. Furthermore, such a commitment to Van Til's apologetics would have meant publicly extending Van Til's frontal assault against all forms of Arminianism, which would also have threatened a new pool of students who were being recruited from outside the Reformed camp. This created a major institutional problem for the successors of that first generation. They had to decide, if not Van Til, then what? In that era of turmoil, students were demanding answers to real-world problems. This was the dilemma of Bible-believing American churches in 1965-70, to an opportunity that all of them missed, to provide new Bible-based answers to the real-world concerns of a vocal, inquisitive, and intensely disillusioned generation. This was Westminster's grand opportunity. All it would have taken was a self-conscious dedication in applying Van Til's presuppositional apologetic to those areas of thought and culture that were up for grabs in the late 1960s. It was an opportunity forfeited. It was forfeited because of an inescapable conflict. Two legacies were set before the seminary after 1965. Only one could pass to the heirs. The first was Van Til's legacy of a complete break with the philosophy of self-proclaimed autonomous man.
This included all forms of natural law theory. The second legacy was everything else, meaning anything else. This legacy is the legacy of Western apologetics. Various attempts to mix the Bible with prevailing neutral theories about the way the world works, meaning works autonomously. Van Til has spent his career warning against all past attempts to construct these hybrid mixtures. Like mules, he warned, they are all sterile. Now his institutional heirs would have to make a choice between these two legacies. I believe that the bulk of the evidence points to this conclusion. Edmund Clowney made a self-conscious choice, namely the rejection of Van Til's apologetic legacy. The seminary kept Van Til's millennial vision, fort contraction in the wilderness, but it abandoned his apologetic vision. New Amsterdam's eschatological pessimism remained, but the campus was invaded year after year by Gordon Conwell Seminary's political theology and the ecumenical vision of Wheaton College. The seminary changed its positioning, its marketing, its donor base, its character, and ultimately, its confession. The latest product of that transformation is Theonomy, a Reformed Critique. Westminster's Early Tradition What is Westminster Seminary? From 1929 until 1937, everyone with any influence in the American evangelical world knew it was Machen's Seminary. It was Calvinistic, Presbyterian, and academic. It was in the center of the fight for the theological integrity of the Presbyterian Church, USA. Machen was front-page news in those years, and I mean front-page in the New York Times. He testified before Congress on educational affairs, but after the amputation of the fundamentalist Orthodox wing of the PCUSA in 1936, nobody paid much attention anymore. Machen died on January 1, 1937. From then on, for a generation, there was no remaining intellectual leadership in American evangelicalism. There was no one with Machen's stature. Comparatively speaking, there still isn't, but at least there are numerous competitors. From 1937 until the 1960s, there were none. This was a wilderness period. From Machen's death until the revision of the seminary's constitution in the mid-1960s, Westminster became a kind of academic cloister. It staffed its faculty increasingly with Christian Reformed men and all-millennialists who had been trained by them. The original post-millennial Princeton eschatology had begun to fade from the beginning and disappeared after Machen died. Van Til became the seminary's most prominent member. Ned B. Stonehouse and Edward J. Young defended the infallibility of the New and Old Testaments, respectively. John Murray and immigrant Scott delivered magnificent classroom prayers and linguistically precise 19th century lectures to be regurgitated verbatim on all exams. R. B. Kuyper, an academic and a bureaucrat, taught practical theology. Paul Woolley taught church history and wrote almost nothing. The campus disappeared from public view. As I have already argued, with his, his ascension to the ad hoc post of acting president of the seminary in 1965, Edmund Clowney began to broaden its base, both financially and promotionally, by moving Westminster into the evangelical mainstream. That mainstream was headed over the cultural falls by the late 1960s, and as the student body grew, the original theological distinctiveness 
of the campus became murky. Rush Dooney's Challenge In the 1963-64 academic year, as Clowney was beginning to take control, Rush Dooney was invited to speak for the first and last time at Westminster Seminary. He had been writing for the Westminster Theological Journal for over a decade. His study of Van Til's philosophy, By What Standard?, had been published in 1959. This was followed by a shortened version, Van Til, 1960, Intellectual Schizophrenia, 1961, and then The Messianic Character of American Education, 1963, which remains the finest critical analysis of the philosophy of American progressive education. The Westminster Theological Journal did review his two books on Van Til, but from then on, Rush Dooney's books went down the WTJ memory hole, with only one exception, an exception that proves the rule. This means that successive editors spiked over two of his dozen books. The reader may not understand the implications of such a blackout. The Westminster Theological Journal for years was regarded by its contributors and its handful of subscribers as the last bastion against the horde of liberal theologians who were laying waste outside the walls. There seemed to be no German-language theology treaties too obscure to be regarded as off-limits to a critical WTJ review. There were long book review articles, too, much longer than is common in most scholarly journals. The Westminster faculty and its more literate graduates would pound away at topics so arcane that few of its subscribers could know what it was all about. Quote, Reading German theologians is dirty, thankless work, but somebody has to do it. End quote. Be thankful that it isn't you or I. Another task of a theological journal is to comment on positive and negative movements within the camp of the faithful. When a reformed scholar of Rush Dooney's capacity appeared on the scene, one would expect, naively, to find reviews of his books. But reviewing controversial, reformed books creates a problem for the reviewers. A critical review will raise the question, whose side are you on? A positive review raises an even more difficult question, why don't you teach what he teaches? What Rush Dooney was teaching was biblical activism and institutional confrontation with the secular humanist world. This is exactly what Westminster Seminary was seeking to avoid under Clowney's leadership. Academia has been forced to become extremely narrow in its specialization. The occupational disease of the specialist is tunnel vision. He cannot see what is going on three feet to the left or right of him. He cannot confidentially interact with the broad issues of life, except as a non-specialist, which makes him nervous. Rush Dooney was doing what Presbyterian scholars did in the middle of the 19th century, commenting on the whole sweep of modern secular scholarship. But by 1900, this tradition was long gone. Thus, Rush Dooney's writings were a threat to the insulated and isolated scholarship of any seminary, even Westminster. What was he going to get Orthodox Presbyterians into, anyway? How closely was his social theory tied to his theology? If his theology was Orthodox, as it seemed to be, then how could Calvinists reject his social theory? Rush Dooney's Goldwater-type conservatism was repugnant to political liberals such as Paul Woolley and Edmund Clowney. It was considered institutionally off-limits by Van Til and Murray, who were traditional anti-New Deal Republicans but who kept their mouths shut publicly on such matters. The faculty was very nervous about him, especially Van Til, whose cause Rush Dooney espoused. In 1967, 
Rushduni's review of E. L. Hebden, Taylor's Christian Idea of Law, Politics in the State, 1966, was published by the journal. This book was a literate, well-written history of Western social philosophy, written from a conservative, Deweyrdian perspective. Rushduni's review was favorable. Like Rushduni, Taylor was both a pastor and an academic outsider. Rushduni mentioned in his review that Taylor's book was in the tradition of Abraham Kuyper, the most famous representative of the Netherlands' anti-revolutionary party. But Rushduni made a tactical error. He observed that this political party had become the semi-revolutionary party. Given what has happened in the Netherlands since then, this was an accurate assessment. But Rushduni was never again asked to review a book in the WTJ. Only one subsequent review of a Rushduni book ever appeared. Faculty member John Frame's late 1976 review of the Institutes of Biblical Law, 1973, which had not been assigned to him or anyone else and which encountered opposition from the WTJ's editor, Robert Knudsen. It appeared over three years after the book had appeared. Frame concluded that there were some good parts of the book and, not, and some not-so-good parts, but on the whole, the book was well worth reading. His standard sic et non analysis, for which he has become, if not legendary, then at least well known to insiders. Thus, there was a struggle for the minds of Calvinists going on in the late 1960s. It was an era of transition. No one had a fully developed position to present to the Reformed community. It was a period of ferment, intellectually and culturally, on campus and off, and no Calvinist had a comprehensive alternative. This gave Edmund Clowney and his allies a window of opportunity. The need for a two-pronged attack. To have taken advantage of that brief era of intellectual ferment, Westminster Seminary needed a two-pronged attack. First, it needed a comprehensive critical analysis of the failure of humanism. Van Til had provided this. Second, it needed a comprehensive positive alternative that in no way rested on the presuppositions of humanism yet which would be reliable because of its origin in God's word. Van Til had not given them this. They looked elsewhere. In each case, the move was away from a passive Calvinism toward what? We are still not sure. To the extent that theonomy and Reformed critique is representative of the new Westminster, there is no way we can be sure. All we know is that the change has taken place. At least five major alternatives were offered on campus. Each of the suggested alternatives moved away from the judicial theology of biblical covenantalism. For example, the theology of the original Westminster Confession. As a conservative columnist Garrett Garrett put it in 1944, the revolution was. Beginning in 1965, Edmund Clowney was given a unique opportunity to redirect the focus of the seminary, both in terms of its underlying apologetic approach and its constituency. He could use the traditional requirement of academic etiquette, never publicly challenge a faculty colleague with respect to his first principles, to restructure the seminary without visible opposition, fire someone, yes, but never publicly admit why. This is exactly what the Presbyterian Church USA did to Machen and his followers. Never was the real dividing issue admitted by the church's bureaucrats' theology. Always this issue was denied. No one on the faculty would dare to appeal directly to the donors, for example, in order to impede this restructuring. That would be bad manners. 
The restructuring could therefore continue quietly over many years. There would be no Princeton-like explosion. The agenda of the president of the seminary will always be dominant unless there is open rebellion from below. Step by quiet step, the opponents are isolated. Faculty attrition allows the person in power to impose his agenda. The board sees the president as its man. But if the board is like most academic boards, it generally defers to its man. The fact is, the board is his board. What took place at Westminster Seminary after 1965 offered Van Til and his followers an opportunity to learn firsthand what I have been saying for a long time. You can't beat something with nothing. Others offered partial somethings. Without a direct appeal to biblical law, Van Til's negative critique of humanism was no match for what appeared to be legitimate alternatives, but which were not, and could not become, comprehensive biblical worldviews. Number 1. The Cosmonomic Alternative For a brief period, some of the faculty and students looked to Herman Dewey Weird. Knudsen still does. Dewey Weird had charted the history of the pretended autonomy of human thought, case by case, in his new critique of theoretical thought, focusing especially, as Van Til had, on Kant and his successors. But he offered no positive alternatives. There was no explicitly biblical content in his 15 modal spheres. Indeed, he denied the validity of any attempt to infuse these spheres with biblical content. He stated emphatically in his rejoinder to Van Til that his cosmonomic philosophy, quote, does not aim at a defense of the Christian faith, but at laying bare the central influence of the different religious basic motives upon the philosophical trends of thought. For that purpose, it was necessary to show the inner point of contact between theoretical thought and its supra-theoretical assumptions, which relate to the central religious sphere of human existence. This is why this transcendental critique is obliged to begin with an inquiry into the inner nature and structure of the theoretical attitude of thought and experience as such and not with a confession of faith. Let us pass over his verbiage, for which he and his followers have rightly become famous. He self-consciously offered no confession of faith, yet he was, for a decade or so, taken seriously at Westminster as an alternative to Van Til. Because of this absence of confessional, creedal, and biblical content, Dewey Weird's cosmonomic law approach seemed to offer common intellectual ground with the lost. The transcendental heart, undefined and vaguely Kantian in tone, the modal spheres also seemed to be universal. Van Til knew better. This quest for common ground, according to Van Til, is the consequence of covenant-breaking man's assertion of his own autonomy. Having denied the only possible common ground among all men, the image of God in man. The covenant breaker then searches for a replacement. He seeks for neutral ground for both God and man to stand on. This quest, Van Til thought, is demonic. Satan's original temptation. Dewey Weird was adamant about his rejection of the Bible as the source of the content of his philosophy. He summarized Van Til's thesis, quote, Listening to Scripture, obeying the voice of God speaking through Christ in Scripture, means making every human thought subject to divine thought expressed in scriptural concepts so that man has to think God's thoughts after him, end quote. 
This is indeed Van Til's position, and Dewey Weird would have none of it. Quote, is this really a biblical view? I am afraid not. Nowhere does the Bible speak of obeying the voice of God in terms of subjecting every human thought to divine thought. The New Testament understanding of obedience is doing the Father's will, revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, by believing with all our heart that we belong to Him. There is no real obedience to the will of God that does not result from the heart. In the pregnant, biblical sense, as the religious center of our existence, which must be regenerated and opened up by the divine moving power of the Holy Ghost. End quote. Inevitably, the question arises, how do we know that we truly love God and that He truly loves us? Jesus was clear on this point. Quote, if, ye lo- if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. End quote. John 15.10 It is this judicial component of saving faith that Dewey Weird strove to avoid. He appealed to the heart, and, and in doing so, opened the floodgates to irrationalism, an experience as tests of faith, rather than to our obedience to God's Bible-revealed law. But Van Til could not pin him down, for he himself was vague about the content of this law and where we must turn in the Bible to discover it. Dewey Weird was Dutch. He had taught at the Free University of Amsterdam, By adopting Dewey Weird, Westminster could quietly move away from Van Til without risking a significant defection of the seminary's Christian Reformed supporters. Dewey Weird appeared to be Reformed theologically. He was visibly hostile to humanism. His statement on the non-confessionalism of his system did not appear in print until 1972, and then only in an obscure book. In short, Dewey Weird was institutionally safe a halfway house, common ground apologetic, on the road back to natural law theory. Interest in Dewey Weird on campus faded as the 1970s wore on, but interest in Van Til did not revive. The late 1960s had done their work. Wood had been a quiet philosophical division within the faculty, 1929-65. to 65. Common sense rationalism versus Van Til's biblical presuppositionalism became less and less a division within the faculty, as Van Til's radical position was steadily abandoned. The hiring of Clowney's son, David, marked the tombstone over the legacy of Van Til on campus at Westminster East. At Westminster West, John Frame still keeps the frame alive, although buried under several layers of outlines. What had gone wrong? Basically, it was this. Van Til had not followed through with the revolution he had launched. His intellectual revolution had been framed as a negative critique and not as a positive alternative. His was a system that was immediately useful only for blowing up bad things, not rebuilding. The foundation stones for developing a positive alternative were in place. The doctrine of creation, the creator-creature distinction, the doctrine of the trinity, the one and the many, the self-attesting nature of scripture, the non-neutrality of man, the identification of the doctrine of the ontological subordination of Jesus as the foundation of all heresies, and so forth. But he had no way to get from his systematic dynamiting of natural law theory to comprehensive social reconstruction, except by way of biblical law. Rush Dooney and I took that path in the late 1960s. Van Til would not follow. Number 2. The New Life Church Alternative Reverend C. John Miller 
had worked with Rush Dooney and me at the William Volker Fund in Burlingame, California in 1963. I was just starting out. He was at a turning point in his career. He seemed to be a dedicated follower of Van Til. While employed by the Volker Fund, he wrote a three-volume manuscript on the failure of public education. It was never published. In 1966, he joined the faculty at Westminster. The counterculture deeply affected Miller. He adopted new approaches to evangelism. They were people-oriented, but not theology-oriented. He pioneered the first of what have become known as New Life Presbyterian Churches. They have not officially departed from confessional orthodoxy. Nevertheless, their focus has not been on a traditional confessional preaching and Calvinistic doctrine. They have been more closely associated with the church growth movement. In achieving greater growth, they have created confusion within Reformed Presbyterian circles about the proper balance between creedal preaching and the personal needs of new converts. New Life Ecclesiology was one alternative in the late 1960s to the older ecclesiastical traditions that had been defended at Westminster. It was not an explicit denial of confessionalism, but it was unquestionably a different approach to church growth. The concerns of the older faculty members with the details of Reformed theology did not seem all that relevant in the cultural crisis of the late 1960s. When the 70s cooled things off, the concern of many students remained church growth, since they had not entered Westminster as Calvinists anyway. They wanted good jobs. This is the whole idea behind academic certification anyway. They wanted what the seminary wanted, accreditation. Theology was secondary for them. Miller's church-building program was not self-consciously grounded in the older, judicial theology of Calvinism. This is one reason why so many students accepted the new life alternative. Judicial theology has not been acceptable to Arminians for well over two centuries, and really has never been very acceptable to them. It has not been acceptable to the lost, ever. So by failing to bring to the attention of the unbeliever the comprehensive judicial claims of Christ on him from the moment he walks into the church, the New Life churches have gained members but have lost the cutting edge of the older Calvinism. Only by a self-conscious follow-up program based on judicial theology can this New Life approach build explicitly and self-consciously Calvinist churches long-term. But by adopting such follow-up preaching, the old question arises, why won't the members walk across the street to join the Baptists, who may even have a free gymnasium? At some point, the judicial cutting edge of Calvinism must be presented. More than this, it must be pushed forcefully into the consciousness of church members. Do the graduates of Westminster Seminary East and West really understand this? Are they taught, before they leave campus, how to do this? What books are assigned that convey this necessity and a detailed program to achieve it? What Miller did was to provide an ecclesiastical alternative to the older Westminster tradition. It softened the edges of the older Calvinism in its attempt to broaden the base. It was, as some cynics still call it, Miller Light. My point is not that New Life churches are inherently a dead end. They are no more a dead end than the Baptist churches are. My point is that as a seminary-taught ideal, New Life ecclesiology is a partial alternative to Van Til and Theonomy. What these churches offer their members is something less than a comprehensive worldview. They do not motivate their members by preaching the vision of Christendom. They are not yet geared to offering such a theological construct. 
for their focus is not primarily theological. Number three, the Nathetic Counseling Alternative. J. Adams, Ph.D. in speech, became in 1970 a nationally known Christian counselor. His book, Competent to Counsel, 1970, was ideal for the me decade of the 1970s, as was Lindsay's late great Planet Earth, 1970. The excesses of individualism created a market for both Adams, getting your world put back together, and Lindsay, preparing to move out of this world altogether. Adam's counseling methodology was based on the principle of personal responsibility for one's actions. This is the correct approach. But this approach was not explicitly biblical in the sense of being built upon the Old Testament's laws and sanctions. The Nuthetic counselors were not trained to go to specific Bible verses that deal with law and restitution when setting forth solutions to disturbed Christians. Nuthetic counseling was a move away from individualism and autonomy but it was not a move toward the concept of the biblical covenant as the sole valid model for personal and comprehensive rehabilitation. It was far better than the rat maze behaviorism that was parading as academic Christian psychology in 1970, but it lacked an explicitly biblical judicial focus. This lack of a biblical judicial focus was the problem with everything that was coming out of Westminster in this period, with the exception of Norman Shepard's brief preliminary excursions into the question, the relationship between law and grace. For these preliminary excursions, he was fired in 1982. Number four, the intrusionist alternative. In the writings of Old Testament theologian Meredith G. Klein, we have the foundation of a reconstruction of covenant theology. His 1960s essays in the Westminster Theological Journal on the structure of the covenant, its relationship to ancient suzerainty treaties, and on the ecclesiastical covenant sanctions are all remarkable contributions to Christian scholarship. They were later assembled into path-breaking books, most notably By Oath Consigned, 1968, and The Structure of Biblical Authority, 1972. But like Van Til's apologetics, Klein's system has a problem. He did not do anything positive with his discoveries. Worse, his goal was to keep anyone else from doing anything with them. His theory of the entire mosaic economy as an intrusion into covenant history tore the judicial heart out of the covenant model that he, had, that he said had prevailed in Israel. By breaking with the mosaic economy, he created a judicial discontinuity that rivaled anything that C.I. Schofield and the faculty of Dallas Theological Seminary had suggested. By denying that the law of Moses have anything to do with the new covenant economy except as types and symbols of Christ's death, and resurrection, and the post-judgment kingdom of God, he went far beyond the Westminster Confession of Faith and its supporting proof texts. Klein was another useful means of deflecting the seminary from the judicial implications of Van Til's system. Klein was a defender of the framework hypothesis, which argues that the six days of creation are not literal, but are literary devices. Day one is linked to day four, day two to day five, and day three to day six. Edward J. Young had attacked this thesis in his WTJ articles that later became Studies in Genesis 1, 1964. Politely using Nick Ritterboss as surrogate in his attack on his colleague, Klein. Being a sweet, lovable man, Young lost the fight. Few of the students even knew there was a fight going on. Klein made it intellectually acceptable for bright Calvinist students 
to reject six-day creationism. He also enabled them to reject any notion of the judicial relevance in New Testament times of God's Old Testament law order. This is just what Clowney needed in the late 1960s, a non-covenantal Calvinism that would appeal to the neo-evangelicals coming out of the evangelical colleges. When Klein joined the faculty of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, maintaining full professorships at both, it was perfect. The institutional link was sealed between the post-Van Til Calvinism of Westminster and the social ethics of neo-evangelicalism. The confession of neo-evangelical social ethics is basically this, quote, We can legitimately adopt ten-year-old pol- political fads that have now been discarded by the liberals, and all in the name of relevant Christianity, end quote. This was perfect for Clowney's restructuring of the seminary. It could preach Christian social relevance without the conservative judicial constraints of biblical law. Number five, the almost liberation theology alternative. I have in mind here the missions classes of Harvey Kahn and the social activism of David Clowney. Clowney was fired in 1988 for his views on women's ordination. As I write, Kahn is under investigation by his presbytery, also over the question of ordaining women. Clowney never published books defending his ideas, but Kahn wrote several, including Bible Studies on World Evangelism and the Simple Lifestyle, 1981, and Evangelism, Doing Justice and Preaching Grace, 1982. He promoted the ideal of social concern in missions, legitimate in my view, but without grounding his suggested reforms in the specifics of biblical law. This form of social activism has never received any systematic biblical exegesis in its defense. The liberation theology movement in Latin America is mostly Marxist. Anyone who wants evidence of its economic and political radicalism can read dozens of books published by Orbis Books, the publishing arm of the Mary Knoll Order. The Protestant version is less ideological. It is a muddled mixture of Old Testament allusions, welfare state economics, and criticisms of corrupt institutional structures. Ron Sider is the most popular neo-evangelical promoter of this theology, or was until David Chilton wrote Productive Christians in an Age of Guiltless Manipulators, 1981, a book Sider studiously avoided mentioning in the revised edition of Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, 1984, whose cover promised that the book would answer his critics. The first edition was co-published by the liberal Roman Catholic Paulist Press and InterVarsity Press. Another co-publishing venture is the paperback series Mission Trends, Paulist Press and Erdman's. See especially Mission Trends Number 4, Liberation Theologies, 1979. Marxism was buried as an ideology in late 1989. Liberation theology is, at least for the moment, in and something of an intellectually catatonic state. The appeal of liberation theology while it lasted was a potent combination of rhetoric, envy, guilt, statism, and a call to social justice, compulsory wealth redistribution. Still, it was the one comprehensive Christian alternative to the activism of Christian Reconstruction in the 1970s and 1980s. Now there is none. Consolidating the Revolution, 1975 to 1985, with several available alternatives to choose from, the new Westminster moved away from something resembling the older university ideal to a multiversity, 
Everyone offered a partial alternative. No one offered a comprehensive alternative. This was an ideal situation for those who wanted to move away from Van Til's legacy of total confrontation with both humanism and the compromised Christian philosophical tradition. They did not have to appear dogmatic about which option to choose. Van Til's position could therefore be considered as one among many. This view was in tune with American evangelicalism's apologetic methodology, a smorgasbord apologetic for a pluralistic world, a little rationalism, a little evidentialism, a bit of intuitionism, mix well and heat to 350 degrees for 20 minutes. In short, just pick and choose. It was not crucial for the president of the seminary to specify exactly where the new Westminster was headed. What mattered most was what it was steadily leaving behind. It was leaving behind a theological revolutionary whose dogmatic ideas had become an embarrassment in a pluralistic evangelical world. Westminster was broadening its base. From what I could see at a distance, Clowney had no significant public problem until the mid-1970s with the implementation of his strategy of base broadening and confession thinning. There was no positive, exegetically reformed worldview available as an alternative until the Institutes of Biblical Law appeared in 1973. But Rush Dooney had left the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1970. Later, his not-so-subtle reference to the Orthodox Pharisees Church, OPC, sealed this departure. He had always been an outsider in the OPC from the day he left the PCUSA and joined in 1958. Also, he had no advanced theological degree beyond the BD. His MA in education did not impress the faculty. He remained outside any local church after the institutes appeared. He also ceased taking the Lord's Supper. There was no way that any Reformed seminary could hire him. In any case, he was not interested in leaving California. The followers of Van Til, therefore, had a major problem. Who should replace him after he officially retired in 1972? There was no clear choice until the mid-1970s. Then it became obvious to just about everyone, especially Clowney. Bonson. This was Clowney's problem. Bonson had been awarded a THM from Westminster in 1973. He was working on his Ph.D. in philosophy at the University of Southern California. Why not hire Bonson? After all, he was Van Til's choice. But Bonson was more than the defender of a negative critique of humanism. He had developed in a highly systematic form a positive judicial alternative to natural law theory, namely theonomy. He had provided the formal apologetic for biblical law. He had done all this in the arcane language known as theologian. Rush Dooney does not speak it. Neither do I. Also, Rush Dooney's wide cultural vision was not acceptable to a seminary. Neither was mine. But Bonson had narrowed the scope of his presentation to fit the self-imposed limits of theological academia. When Bonson was granted his Ph.D. in 1979, I think he became Edmund Clowney's worst nightmare. A theonomist with a terminal degree. Something that David Clowney and John Frame did not possess. From 1979 forward, there was no legitimate academic reason for Westminster not to hire Bonson. Yet this was not to happen. In 1982, the board failed to renew Norman Shepard's contract. Try and find anyone who can tell you what theological grounds they had. His presbytery found none. Next, they hired Clowney's son, David. Wayne State University M.A. in hand, 
to fill Van Til's position as the resident apologist at the Philadelphia campus. The transformation of Westminster East was sealed. For the next seven years until David Clowney's dismissal, apologetics at Westminster's Philadelphia campus meant always having to say you were sorry. Sorry for being white, masculine, middle class, educated, American, and living in Philadelphia's suburbs. The primary institutional task of Westminster's resident apologist, whoever he may be, the ultimate institutional task for which he is being paid, is to declare publicly, if only by his silence, what Westminster isn't, theonomic. It was this priority that made an M.A. from Wayne State more academically acceptable than a Ph.D. from USC. They bent the academic rules. Surprise, surprise! It was one more bit of evidence supporting Van Til's claim that neutrality is a myth. A New Confession for Westminster? Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, is a symposium written by faculty members and former faculty members of Westminster Theological Seminary. The book appeared a bit late, 17 years after 1. Roe v. Wade, 2. Rush Dooney's Institutes of Biblical Law, 3. The Publication of My Introduction to Christian Economics, 4. Chalcedon Report started publishing My Economic Commentary on the Bible column, and 5. The Acceptance by the Westminster Faculty of Bonson's THM Thesis, and 14 years after the thesis was published, Theonomy and Christian Ethics. So far, we have published well over 100 volumes of theonomic books in scholarly journals. Theonomy, a Reformed Critique, appeared in the same month that the 25th anniversary issue of Rush Dooney's Chalcedon Report appeared. Better late than never. Theonomy's critiques may imagine, unless the book is really wrong. My conclusion, better never, at least for them. Terrific for me. The book is eminently useful to me as a foil. I get to come in as a defender of others, since I am rarely referred to in the book. What may strike some readers as even more peculiar is this. The essays in the Westminster Symposium refer comparatively infrequently to Volume 1 of Rush Dooney's Institutes in their criticisms of the theonomic position, and even less frequently to the far less vigorous Volume 2, Law and Society, even though they would all freely acknowledge that Rush Dooney's book was the first study to present the theonomic position in detail, almost 900 pages of detail. Instead, the essays focus far more attention on Bonson's Theonomy and Christian Ethics, 1977. There are several plausible reasons for this. First, the bulk of Bonson's book was originally accepted by the Westminster faculty as his THM thesis. There seems to be a sense of guilt and remorse about, about this among some of the faculty critics. On the other hand, the seminary never endorsed Rush Dooney's Institutes, let alone the hundred-plus volumes of materials, not counting newsletters, that we theonomists have written before and after 1973. So theonomy, a reformed critique, is to some extent an exercise in academic atonement. Some of the essays, most notably Frames and Poitresses, are also attempts to atone for Meredith Klein's 1978 critique of Bonson. Others, however, are extensions of Klein's critique, this is why the symposium is both judicially schizophrenic and judicially agnostic. Second, as mentioned earlier, Bonson wrote Theonomy and Christian Ethics and that arcane foreign tongue known as theologian. Those who still speak it, or at least lisp it, usually take more seriously those books 
that are written in it. Third, Bonson is an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which years ago was loosely related to Westminster Seminary. In a peculiar sense, it still is. Faithful OPC members keep sending in checks to keep CRC and PCA faculty members employed. For ecclesiastical old time's sake, perhaps they pay greater attention to Bonson. Fourth, Bonson's book is an apologetic. It has a narrower focus and a more limited goal than Institutes of Biblical Law or My Tools of Dominion. The scholar who attempts to refute it is not risking getting entrapped in some academic minefield he is not familiar with. Fifth, Bonson has not written very much over the years. The critic is less likely to get sandbagged by the classic retort, quote, if Professor Dork had just read my book on, end quote. The critics did not have to read very much in order to form a theologically defensible opinion of theonomy, or so they seemed to have believed. If they believed this, they were wrong. They needed to pay far more attention to his arguments. Judgment cometh. On the one hand, on the other. The essays in the theonomy critique were written by men holding advanced theological degrees and, at least at some point during the five-year effort to produce it, who were in some way connected with Westminster Seminary. Because Westminster Seminary has long enjoyed the reputation as the most academic of Presbyterian-related conservative seminaries, and perhaps even the most academically rigorous of all Bible-affirming seminaries, every essay in this book should have been a cut above the fundamentalist diatribes that have greeted the work of theonomists since about 1985. Such is not the case. Compared to Timothy Keller, Dave Hunt is a pillar of scholarship and self-restraint. Compared to John R. Moither, Wayne House is Augustine. Rhetorically and structurally, this book resembles an exercise in Hegelianism. Time and again, the authors use the traditional thesis-antithesis approach to attack theonomy. They adopt the sic et non, yes and no strategy that Abelard used in the 11th century to undermine men's faith in the Church Fathers. But Hegel implied that there would be a temporary resolution of each pair of synthesis-antithesis dichotomies. Each synthesis would become the next thesis. Where, then, is Westminster's synthesis? Theonomy, a Reformed critique, offers a collection of antinomies without resolution, dichotomies without healing. It is a confession of fifteen theologians and a librarian in search of a synthesis. It offers a new confession. The question is, what is the nature of this new confession? It is this, quote, A positive confession regarding the, legit the legitimacy of Christendom is itself not biblical. Therefore, Westminster could not hire Bonson and had to fire Shepherd. Conclusion The thesis of the present book is that Westminster Seminary faced a crisis in 1965. Would it remain true to Van Til's apologetic? Would the members of the faculty at least do what they had never done before? Would they take Van Til's insights on the failure of natural law theory and apply them systematically and fearlessly to their own disciplines? Would they break with their academic peers and begin to pioneer a whole new worldview based on Van Til's decisive break with humanism? Would they offer reconstructions of their own academic disciplines based on Van Til's insistence that only the Bible is a valid foundation of truth in every field of thought? Would they, in short, become theological revolutionaries? We know the answer today. Like a dog returning to its vomit, 
the anti-theonomists have gone back to natural law theory. They have abandoned the legacy of Van Til, the quasi-theonomists on the faculty watch silently from the sidelines. They have not made it clear, either to their students or their readers, that their colleagues have taken this step backward into medieval scholasticism. Westminster Seminary still proclaims its commitment to John Calvin. If my thesis is correct, that there is a new confession at Westminster Seminary, then how could this transition away from Van Til have taken place? Is Westminster being faithful or unfaithful to Calvin by abandoning Van Til? Was Van Til faithful or unfaithful to Calvin? Is the follower of Van Til faced with a choice between Calvin and Van Til? To answer these questions, we need to consider the divided judicial legacy of John Calvin. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.